Hello, we are back again um, with how AI built this. This time with an episode that's probably been six months in the making. Lots of diary clashes, some rearranging, finally sorting something out and then the pandemic hit. But we're finally here, so uh, excited to get this one in the books. Uh, first, thanks to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring um, and indeed letting me do this as part of my day job, uh, which is pretty cool. So big shout out to them. Uh, my guest today is Anna Sutton. Um, she's the CEO of Leeds-based The Data Shed. So Anna set up The Data Shed with her partner Ed after growing increasingly frustrated in her previous life as a marketeer uh, and kind of noticing how hard it was for a non-techie to use customer data to provide insights um, and obviously customer data in marketing is quite important. So with Ed leading the technology charge and Anna running the business side, they have set up the data shed and been very, very successful. But I'll let Anna tell you the full story. Um, She'll be much better at it than I will be. Uh, So yeah, please welcome to the show, Anna Sutton. First of all, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. No worries. I feel like we've been trying to do this for ages because I was hoping to come into the office in Leeds and then COVID hit. So uh, virtually, virtually we'll have to do. It's been a bit crazy for the last well we, we, we counted the weeks up last week 21 weeks we've been working from home at the shed so yeah it's uh it's not been the most um easy time to get things in my diary so sorry about that no it's fine it's been it's been a long old slog yeah we counted the weeks the other day and it's uh, it's terrifying we always kind of touch on education at the start of the show i always mention why we do it it's just because nobody comes from the kind of same background um, and obviously given the fact that you're not in a technical role, um, it's interesting to see what you did before as well. So you did uh, a degree in management and marketing, right? I did. So, yeah, I did a degree in management science, uh, which is a strange title for a basically business <laughs> studies degree. Um, the management science, and we could um, we could create a specialism by the modules that we took um, during our degree. So um, I had a natural affinity with marketing. I've always really enjoyed it. So I did a lot of the marketing modules. So that's how I ended up with that kind of specialism. But it's kind of a build your own degree. It was really cool, actually. Really enjoyed it. Nice. Um, I actually did exactly the same thing. So I did, a, I think mine was called like an MA in marketing and management or something. But because mm-hmm. you could build it yourself, I ended up making a bit of a mess of it and only did like two or three marketing modules or something like that um and ended up just doing loads of more generic business stuff and accidentally did business law for a semester which was a mistake Uh, i did a full year's worth of contract law which was uh (sighs) intense to say the least (laughs) straight to the union after that uh after that lecture um no, but I actually really enjoyed it as well. It is quite, uh, mine was quite generic, um, but it's actually potentially helped with some other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I wish I'd done a little bit more of the actual marketing stuff. But then you pretty much put that degree straight to use, right? So you spent a few years working in a bunch of different marketing roles. I did all sorts. So when I, uh, so I went to UMIST, which due to my age, is no longer even in existence. It was absorbed by uh, Manchester University a few years ago. So when I say to some of the younger members of my team, oh, yeah, I went to you, missed the look at me with utter blank faces, which you know, <laughs> always, always good for the soul. A lot of my um, contemporaries at university went on to do PwC, the big four graduate roles, and I just didn't fancy one. So what I kind of did was build my own. So I bounced about from lots of different 
roles in the first 10 years of my career. The client side, agency side, um, learned all sorts, worked in um, a fulfillment factory for a while as an account manager there. So really got to grips with um, the production end of um, direct marketing because, um, you know, so, uh, the dinosaur that I am, email marketing didn't really exist when I first um, <laughs> started <laughs> You're making yourself sound so much older than you actually are on the show I, Yeah, I know, but there, there was a, it was all about um, direct mail uh, when I started working in marketing, um, certainly from a direct perspective, um, and a lot of TV and radio um, and press. Um, and obviously there's a whole different array of marketing channels now and it's been really fascinating actually to watch the shift and how um digital marketing um came along and was handled uh, by different businesses that i worked for um, and then obviously it turned into ppc and seo and all the other different channels that were available now of course it's all just marketing um and the offline stuff is actually the the specialism now because it's it's you know the the digital's taken over um, so it's been a really fascinating uh, career because when I, my kids laugh at me, my husband is, is younger than I am, my husband and business partner, and he somehow managed to convince my children that life was black and white <laughs> when I was a child, which is uh, which is entertaining. But, um, you know, when I'm talking to some of the younger members of the team, you know, trying to explain how I grew up and the fact that, you know, I only had four TV channels when I was very, very young. I mean, that very swiftly moved forward. But, you know, how we didn't really have Google at university. We didn't really have, we had email, but it wasn't anywhere near kind of the communication technology that it is today. You know, so I actually went to the library and did my research. I couldn't just search for stuff online. I mean, the search engines were nowhere near where they are today. Uh, So it's just really, it's just been a really interesting kind of, I think they've created a new generation for like the four years between the, and I just fit nicely in that kind of in terms of watching technology kind of come in as we've grown up. So it's it's been kind of really interesting having to continually stay on top of the next change and the next change and the fact that thing, things have so completely shifted over the years uh, from a, an offline to an online world. Uh, so, yeah, yeah it's, been a, it's been a really interesting life. And marketing has changed beyond recognition over those 20 years. Uh, but yeah, the first the first four or five roles I had were in various different degrees, and it really set me up for understanding the way the world of business worked. So not just marketing, but also understanding how different different business models worked, consultancy and agency models worked, um, and also I've worked in um, FMCG and finance as well. And I've had clients in all walks of life when I've worked in agency model when I've worked in agency businesses. So. It's really given me, it gave me a really solid grounding in terms of how different types of business work. And it's really helped a lot of the lessons that I learned in those early days have really helped kind of set up the business and, and, and keep it running, really. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it's really good to, I suppose you've had a lot of advantages that way. You've seen like kind of the whole switch. And also, um, it was probably quite interesting when you first started because like when, you're talking about data and marketing. I think everyone just assumes that's par for the course now. It's quite natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure when you were doing the kind of direct advertising, like you said, and uh, and there wasn't really the big push on digital, it was really quite hard to use data properly. It would depend on how you define data. So obviously, um, names and addresses um, are at the heart of direct mail. Um, <laughs> and ch- choosing choosing who to mail and how to mail was very much an analytical science. So there was lots of social demographic profiling done, understanding segmentation. You know, it, it all still applied. It was just a lot slower. 
being in the world of direct marketing actually really it was very much data heavy did a lot of work with the um credit bureaus particularly in financial services which is um an area i worked in quite a lot over the years um it it we just didn't have the tools then that we do now um and i think the first the first role that i really had where i had proper access to decent analysis was in a financial services role and um we worked with the analytical teams they actually combined the marketing team and the data analysis and the credit and risk specialists and pulled us all together into a into a team called value management and our role was to work together to drive value for the business and its customers so we were actually it was the first time i'd ever had proper access to data scientists who really understood segmentation we'd kind of just played with it up until that point but getting proper results and roi figures on on all of the marketing campaigns that we were running it was like a marketer's dream and it was the first time i'd really been able to get under the skin of how the data that you picked and how the segmentation you did actually fed back into the results that you got so it was it was fascinating they built me a cube i was like oh this is brilliant because i can do my own analysis it was the first time that i'd actually been given proper tools to to really drive forward the marketing strategy in and it was it was the first real eye-opening experience of what having decent data analytics can do for a business. Yeah, and, uh, and I was going to touch on kind of like that. Um, so um, you obviously went to the market and saw the benefit, but I think I read somewhere um, that kind of one of the real, I don't know, drivers behind setting up the data shed was kind of the frustration of <laughs> not not being able to, either get the data or easily use it or make sense of it um do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of why the data yes. shed came to be yes so after that job i then went into another one where i had nothing um <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd gone in to take um, an e-commerce marketing manager role and there was no measurement of anything and there were no analytical tools and it was quite a niche part of a much bigger business so we didn't have the internal tech skills in to to be able to do the kind of analysis that I was used to having from the previous job. Oh, it was so frustrating. Uh, and just being able to do very basic segmentation analysis that you would just expect to be able to do as a you know, marketing 101 was almost impossible. And I'd be on the phone to Ed, who was my business partner, who I actually met in my previous role. And I'd be like, surely this is possible. Surely there's something. I mean, I know I'm not a data scientist and I know that I'm not technical, but surely there are tools out there that I can load my data in and be able to just do some basic analysis and segmentation to to drive in, incremental ROI, for, you know, drive value for the business I work for. And at that point in time, there was nothing. And that's really where the, the seed came from to build something that allowed people like me who had you know the understanding of who our customers are and how they operate and how they work and you can see the responses coming through you see the click-throughs you can see the emails that get opened you understand kind of what messages are working in what way but be able to take that and turn that into analysis to make better decisions to drive better um better response rates and better better ROI really so driving more value for that for that organization from the budget that I held and that really has turned into our mission at the data shed is to be able to build those tools or give people um, access to the value that's held in their data to be able to drive their business forward regardless of their technical capability um, I'm a massive um, as you can probably guess I'm a, I'm a massive supporter of 
useful tools being put in the hands of people who are making decisions every day on behalf of that business. Um, analytics does not belong in the tech team. It belongs across your business so that everybody is making better decisions on behalf of your organization every day. And mm. if we can't find those tools, then we should make them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. We had an interesting chat about this yesterday that, uh, that where kind of data belongs. And I spoke to loads of companies where they have like a data team who maybe work on the marketing platform, but then they'll hire a data consultancy who will help with like financial forecasting or something mm-hmm. like that. It's all, it's all kind of disparate. And I don't, I don't understand how that makes sense. Like they want them to be together probably as their own function. So they don't have to report into loads of people. I think it's really important to have a data team in the organization that looks after the data, makes sure it's clean and it's secure and it's looked after. But if you have an analytics team, it just becomes a massive bottleneck. So what you get is a big, long list of questions that come in from all over the organization. And what will happen is the FD will come in and ask a question that will trump everybody on the list and their, and their, and their question will go to the top. And, you know, it depends on what you have is people who just want to ask these questions who who can be making like small changes every day but don't have kind of the size of the question that you know really promotes it to the top of the list to go into that team so really what you're then doing is you, you you're limiting the ability the capability of your organization to make continual improvements and you know, well yes a lot of the you know the really um deep dive data science stuff can only be done by um, data scientists and analysts. Um, actually, if you've got a really solid data structure with simple to use tools over the top, you know, there's very little mischief that people can get into um, as long as your uh, your data is well defined and you have a, a solid library within your organization so that everybody understands what a customer is, for example. Um, one of the often debated and furiously debated um, terms in any organization we're going to is what is the definition of a customer because marketing will have a different idea to it than finance will um, as, as will operations and, and other elements of the business because obviously they're targeted against KPIs and different viewpoints will come into play depending on which which part of that organization there is and actually get into that single view of the truth on the different data elements in an organization is one of the key challenges we face as a consultancy every day and actually it's one of the biggest things one of the biggest value-led pieces that we can do is to get an organization to a place where everybody agrees what those data elements are um, and then everyone can move forward speaking the same language yeah no 100 percent um and we'll get into a little bit on the consultancy side in a mm-hmm. sec but just going back to, to 2013 when um you and ed set up the business what so yes you've had the conversation you the, these tools should be possible um yeah. but they're not so you're gonna go build them and, and start your own company what was that actually like kind of leaving a paid job where you've got loads of experience as a marketer going into okay i've now got my own thing so our path to business ownership was a bit odd in that I was made redundant from my job and I was eight months pregnant at the time. Ed, as I said previously, is my business partner and my, and my husband, turned around when the money landed in my account for the redundancy, said, right, well, I'm going to leave my job then. And I was like, okay. So a month later, Ben was born. I had two kids under the age of two and a business kicking off. And we went from there, really. So we just went all in. We had a, we just bought a house 
it was our first home together. Um, you were we not had, messing about. No, nope. <laughs> I think I might have been a bit delirious. I had an eighteen-month-old, and I was seven months pregnant. Eight months pregnant, I was exhausted. But I think you know we, we had enough money to pay the bills for six months on a shoestring, and we'd been talking about it. We'd actually set the business up just after the birth of our first son and then realised just how bonkers that was. Um, so we, we, we put it, uh, we made it dormant for a, for a few months. But yeah, then we kind of, when Ben came along and we had we had the opportunity to have that bit of money that meant that, you know, had a bit of a security blanket, we thought, well, we can either sit around talking about it or we can get on with it. So we got on with it. And um, we were very fortunate that Ed had a decent, a really good, decent, solid reputation in the industry, had lots of contacts from his work at um, both an airline and a financial services organisation that meant that, you know, we could start contracting and then from contracting we started to build up our proposition and we started to win clients and then we started to hire staff, which was probably one of the most intimidating decisions we've ever made. Yeah, and lo and behold, I was... Um, on maternity leave trying to work out how to do accountancy and do bookkeeping which if you uh, saw the scores that I got from you missed on my accountancy exams you would know it's not a strong point um so it just meant that it I, it I really enjoyed it actually it meant that there was stuff I could be doing while the kids were sleeping during the day together which was not often uh, but it meant that there was stuff that I could actually do um, to keep my brain active second time round and maternity leave, which I really, really enjoyed. And a lot of people ask me how on earth I can work with my husband. And actually, we really enjoy it most of the time. It's uh, it, it makes for an interesting dynamic, that's for sure. Given you were eight months pregnant, made redundant, bought a first house, going into business with your husband, COVID must have been just easy. <laughs> uh, it's, a very diff- it's a very different challenge, is COVID, very much yeah. so. Uh, it's it's not been easy because it's been about uh, being responsible for 40 team members and trying to make the right decision for them all, as well as making sure that all our clients are looked after is a very different type yeah, of pressure. Different. But it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's more of us to make those decisions now, which is which is better. <laughs> um, and going back to kind of round about the start, you mentioned that, mm-hmm. um, that you did some contracting and, uh, and that was kind of how to start the business. And I mentioned, uh, I saw you'd said somewhere else that you were quite keen to kind of be self-funded at the start. So mm-hmm. was there a kind of strong reason that you wanted to do it, the two of you kind of with your own money rather than trying to kind of pitch for investment early doors? What? So we looked at some funding options and grants and stuff when we set up and there was very little available. The The funding market in Leeds back then was very different to, to the way it is now. Um, and I'll be honest, we were just completely naive. We had absolutely no idea what options were open to us. We knew that while we wanted to build this product, we had no real view on how long it was going to take. We had no concrete view on how we were going to do it we knocked up a proof of concept quite quickly but we had to shelve it to to grow the consultancy um but i just i just don't think that we had we had the knowledge at that point in time to really understand how how we would go about raising that kind of money to 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 go product only and i think you know if we would set up another organization now it'd be a completely different kettle of fish but uh, I mean, even so, even if we'd have gone out for funding back in back in 2013, the, like I say, the, the, there just weren't the financial support 
in in Leeds then that there is now. There's so much more available for new startups in Leeds now than there was then. There's some really cool things happening in Leeds at the moment. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, all there was. I mean, there still is. It's just it's all gone a bit quiet at the moment. But there are still loads yeah. of really supportive organisations in Leeds who really help people understand the funding that's available. And I think you know the, the funding market's moved on quite a long way in the last seven years with crowdfunding and and options that are available there and match funding that's available from from some of these accelerator programs that like i say it's just completely different yeah no i mean i i think it's also there's something to be said for being self-funded at the early mm-hmm. stage as well just because uh, uh, we have spoke to startups and work with some where they very quickly go for some sort of investment rounds and inevitably you give up some of the business and it's mm-hmm. you need to be wary of not doing that too early as well um whilst also balancing it is quite hard to start a business i absolutely agree and i think um, uh, i have never been more grateful for being self-funded as i was when covid hit because there mm-hmm. was only there was only us to consider so you know Ed and I fortunately live in the same house, which makes life a lot easier, actually, than it has been for the last six months. But, you know, we didn't have any investors to appease. We didn't have to create forecast after forecast after forecast after forecast. You know, all we needed to worry about was what money do we have coming in? How well locked in is it? Who do we need to keep an eye on? And how how do we make sure that the team work effectively from home? How do we keep them safe? It's made life a lot easier for us, actually. And like you say, you know, I'm very grateful I didn't have to give up. 40% 40% of the business for probably a relatively small number. Um, yeah, especially back then. Yeah, they would have given yeah. you like X amount and you wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth it now. That's no. one of the things. I mean, we were really lucky during COVID that we've got two founding directors and they, mm-hmm. like, like you and um, Ed, they speak to each other and look at exactly what you guys looked at and we could not make people redundant or furlough, whereas we've definitely seen a bunch of people in our industry where obviously the kind of shareholders of the board have just said, right, let's get everyone on furlough or half the team redundant or whatever so it's mm-hmm. a, it's a weird it's a weird time and you're right being fully owned is is a huge benefit and you started with consultancy with with ed contracting and i'm sure it kind of spun out from there um mm-hmm. you, you you always had the idea of having your own product as well so you've got the data refinery product right so yep. um do you have that so you have that alongside consulting we do and that's really that probably causes the biggest headaches, actually, because it's two completely different business models. So the refinery is a license fee and it's at startup phase. So well, it went live early last year, but it's the, the, the consultancy always pillages the refinery team because we win new clients and we have to move people around and the refinery gets short shrift, really. Um, that will not happen um, from this point moving forward because we've now got um, clients on board, which is brilliant news. Um, nice. But it, it is very much still startup phase. You know, we're, we're figuring out at the heart of it, it's a data matching engine. So there's a front end that helps you build it into a single view of customer and it's self-service. But, you know, it's also a data matching pipeline that we can plug into all kinds of systems and it can there are all sorts of value propositions that we can put forward for that product. So we're just trying to figure out which ones we want to move forward with and which ones we want to put on hold. But I think running two businesses with two different business models, one which is at scale up and is very hungry, needs lots of process, needs, you know, we're constantly hiring. It, every No week is the same at the data shed um, from the consultancy perspective. It's a real juggling act and the context which is just painful um trying to make sure that both of them get the level of attention that they need 
and yeah it it, it it does cause quite a few problems because you end up talking majority majority about you know the consultancy business because it's the one that has the most problems because it's got all the staff and it's it's got all the clients and it's got you know all the money and it, you know you, you we've got to keep that running meanwhile this this baby of ours this <laughs> baby number three um that really needs um a lot of attention and tlc to really get it working the way we want it to and get it out to market the way we'd like it to and it, it just it is yeah it, it can be quite contentious particularly when ed's work wants to work on one and i want to work on or i have to work on the other one so it, it yeah it causes conflict yeah and is is the plan that the the refinery will cross over with some consultancy clients and you could potentially like leave it with them as like a, a kind of post sales solution or is it a completely different kind of clientele you're going for? I think, um, no, the idea is that there will definitely be both sides. So hopefully the product will bring in data science consultancy elements. Um, and likewise, we should be able to sell the product into our consultancy clients, but we would never do that if it wasn't right for them. I think the idea is that the data refinery will help loads of SMEs um, have the same level or certainly a degree of expertise that they wouldn't be able to afford if from a consultancy perspective. But there are parts of the refinery that we can pull out that will actually be really helpful for some much larger organisations. So the, the idea really is that they should both dovetail quite nicely together and the refinery is only our first product i mean we've not built the second one yet but we've got ideas for product two three and four um but we need to get the first one done first i mean we've got staying ahead of ourselves um i mean but there you know there's so many things that we want to do with the with the data refinery in terms of next step development um linking in with other products and um, looking at how um we can get client feedback and what what drives value for our customers at the minute is based on what Ed and I think is right. You know, and we've I've been out of the marketing market now for what, eight, seven, eight years. I don't know, too long. Um, so you know, we really need to get out there and start talking to people who are actually using it to work out the next steps for it. Is that is not something I thought about, but it's probably worth touching on. Is it quite difficult when you're a founder that you can have? like product number two, product number three, product number four, like you just said, is it quite difficult to not run and just jump two feet into number two now that refinery is it's in scale up and it still needs a lot of attention, but you kind of get excited and think, well, let's get number, let's get product number two out. And then I've let's got no it. people. I've got no people. That's a problem. I mean, it, it, uh, my head of delivery would probably drive to my house and smack me in the face if I started another product right now um the capacity I've got the capacity management meeting this afternoon at four o'clock and it's going to be who's going to do all this work and we've got we've got new clients coming in which is amazing we've got we've got consultancy work coming in which is you know pure consultancy where we're just going in and looking at what what um these clients can do what they've got and what their next steps should be on their uh data on this data analytics journey uh, rather than going into into build phase with them and we've got loads of projects kicking off in the next eight weeks and i've got no people and we're hiring which is exciting um, but then we've got to onboard people remotely which is going but going quite well actually but yeah product number two is going to have to stay on the back burner until next year at the very earliest i would say no, that sounds sensible because I think that's probably another thing people fall into is like they just get really excited and roll out too many things at once when maybe they can't yet. 
Everybody wants to do the shiny stuff, which is always the new ideas and the exciting stuff. And actually following things through to completion tends to be quite, uh, certainly the back end of any project is always difficult because you've got to really kind of finish it off. And we're determined to do that with the refinery before we start to move on to something else. Because I actually think the next phase, uh, the product number two, will probably take lots of elements of the data refinery and pivot what its purpose is to a different kind of thing. We'll be much more focusing on data quality with product number two in terms of, you know, it'd be quite, it sounds really boring, but it'll be much more around kind of regulatory reporting. So for industries that are heavily regulated, how are they certain that the data that they're reporting onto their industry body is accurate? and all sorts of stuff like that but we're, we're yeah. a way off moving forward with that one yeah no that makes sense and you mentioned people so it's quite a good segue on to what i was going to mention next so you said um earlier that when you decided to get well i mean i suppose person number three into the data shed it was really terrifying for you both mm-hmm. uh, and then and then recruitment's pretty much been a constant so i mean for loads of years now and it seems like even during covid like you just said still hiring remote remotely onboarding is there anything that I don't know, so there's probably going to be about six questions here. Is there anything that you wish you'd known back when you first started hiring, anything you might do differently? And has it been hugely different during kind of COVID times or has it just been adapted? To answer question number one, (laughs) always follow your gut when you're hiring somebody for your business. Always. We no longer interview everybody. I mean, obviously, for the first few years, we did interview everybody that came into the shed. And sometimes we made choices that one of us wasn't so sure about and without fail they were always bad decisions we have now quantified kind of what our gut feel is into values and behavioral questions in our hiring process um to obviously expand it out because there's no way if ed and i had to interview everybody that came in through the door we'd just never get anything done now and also it's really important that the team um, are able to do that to build out their own teams um, but yeah we spent a, a really long time invested a lot of money um, towards the end of last year thank god on our hiring process and our interviewing process so actually looking at how we've had company values in place for nearly five years now in terms of what we stand for as a business and um, we've broken those down into kind of behavioral traits that that we we want to see in any team members that come in we can teach people to code we can't teach people to be a human so it's or, or or to be a shedder kind of human and i think it's it's really important that we find the right building blocks to start off with and that's really starting to show huge dividends particularly hiring now because hiring remotely is it, the screen really gets in the way of chemistry massively yeah our our, our behavioral questions really help us with with finding the right people to hire. I'm not going to say we're not going to make loads of mistakes because I'm, I'm sure that there are still plenty of mistakes in the pipeline. But um, I think, you know, really understand what you stand for, understand what kind of person you want to be working with because you will be working with them a lot, particularly the first 10. You know, you will be spending a lot of time together. You'll be figuring out a lot of stuff together. And I think one of the key things you need to be looking for with anybody bringing in early doors of a startup is resilience because the world changes so rapidly when you're in a startup and a scale-up phase, particularly if you're moving fast and it's going well. Um, and we've lost people along the way just because they can't cope with the pace of change. And, you know, the, they go on holiday for two weeks and they turn around and they come back and they're like, this is not the sheds that I left two weeks ago. What's happening? And it, it does change that fast sometimes, particularly in this climate. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's it, finding, find, defining 
what is right for your business is really important and that's difficult because it's different for everybody but uh, if in doubt trust your gut certainly yeah no i like that i mean we went through similar things when we went from like i think there there were six people when i joined and then it got to across a few different offices like 40 or so kind of similar size to to you and it's it's hard to keep hiring when it gets to that bigger stage because it isn't what it was if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um so it becomes harder and harder. So like, yeah, we've had to do quite a lot of learning around that as well. Have you managed to do, I know it seems like it was ages ago now, but did you, have you managed to keep everyone engaged like throughout COVID? So, I mean, I know everyone was doing the whole pub quizzes on Zoom, which feels like nobody does anymore because pubs are open now. Um, but have you, managed to keep, have you managed to keep an element of that within the team? Well, we all are growing sunflowers right now. So I've got six sunflowers that are my, the height of my knee. Aaron, who is one of our shedders, is about six foot two tall and his is taller than he is. So I am losing that competition. Um, yeah, so we, we sent out a care package quite early doors with things like, you know, just like, well, the sunflower seeds, but, you know, tea bags and biscuits and just nice things. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we, we have Friday beers where we all just, you know, whoever's available comes on and has a chat. Um, Nice. But we were, we were already kind of we were already um, using agile methodology in the business, so we've got all the ceremonies that kind of come along with that. Um, so the teams are checking in every morning with stand ups, etc. And then we have a company update every week. Um, they they don't happen every week now, but we're we're trying to keep them moving um, and speak to everybody, get everyone together at least once a week if we can. And yeah, I mean, we're I, I, one of the things that I'm really missing is having a meander around the office and talking to people. So obviously I speak to, you know, certain team members pretty much every day. And then there are other people that I would just never speak to in in the general course of things other than if I bumped into them at the coffee bar at work or kind of just passed the yeah. desk and asked them what they were doing. So I've got coffee in with every – well, I'm rotating through all the team members and sick of me now, but uh, to try and have a 15, 20-minute coffee with three people a week just so I try and stay in touch with how everyone's doing. Um, Ed does the same with with other people so or with with different people so they don't have to put up with both of us in the same week because that's just not nice for anyone but it's just it's just figuring out what's 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 enough and then what's too much and we had loads and loads of chat and i'm sure like everybody else you know remote gaming sessions and all sorts of stuff not there was pub quizzes and all sorts going on in the first few weeks while everyone was just reeling from what was happening has it been weird not um not, uh, yeah, I'm sure you probably have a few now, but is there people that you've just never met? Yeah. In, in person. That must be quite strange as like you know, the owner of the business who went from interviewing everyone to then probably interviewing some to then just like you said, bumping into some people. And now there's people because of all what's going on, you've like, you've literally never met them. Yep. There's, so there are three, four, there's four people that have joined us since lockdown and we've got another two that we've hired who will be joining us in September. Um, one of whom, so we had um, we had shed shed hoodies or shuddies as they're known. I didn't come up with that. Made for everybody, so we could wear a jumper and feel like they were still part of the shed. Um, which I went and I actually drove round dropping them off, so I could go and see everybody and say hi a few weeks ago. And oh, nice. uh, one one of those team members, I, we actually I went to work and I met everybody in the car park and handed out quite a few to everyone who lives in Leeds. Um, and um, one of our team newest team members, Michael, came in, so I got to meet him there face to face, which was really nice. Um, nice. But there's a couple of others who've joined us since who I've not yet met, but I have had um, coffee with them on yeah. a FaceTime because I can't. I'm like, I can't have a team member that I've never met. That's just really weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is very strange. Um, I would normally, I would normally at least be around to say hi in the first week that this started. 
And then I suppose this is just kind of more anecdotal, but from the outside looking in, um, so we've had Ed speaking at um, uh, Leeds ML. We've kind of just like, just from being in the recruitment world in Leeds, it seems like the culture at the data shed is it's pretty amazing. Has that been a lot to do with the values that you've had in place the last five years or so and trusting your gut when hiring rather than some crazy magic formula? It's just really doubling down on that. I think there are a number of factors that come together to make up the shed culture. I think initially it's down to the values, certainly. But I think, I don't know, God, we work really hard on picking the right team members and making life a night, making the shed a nice place to work. There's a huge emphasis on sharing knowledge and everyone learning from each other um, and how we all grow together. And we share numbers and the progress of the business with everybody nothing's a secret i think it's we just really strive to make it a place that we'd want to work i spend a lot a lot or did spend a lot of my life i I still do just in the same house um i spent a lot of my life at the data shed and if it was a horrible place to work it would be awful i've I've worked in a horrible place so i can never want to do that again and you know i think it's really important that you know while we're here to make money of course aren't we all actually i'm here to have a nice time as well and learn something and learn something from the team and just all learn together. And I think everyone's really bought into that. Everyone's really supportive. All I want is for people to go home on a Friday and not have that Sunday job on a Sunday. And if if that's how the team are feeling, then they can talk to us about it um, and we can, we'll can we do our utmost to fix it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think even just speaking to, to you and Ed as well, like just kind of really normal people, like there's not like a... <laughs> Like, thanks it's <laughs> just like when, when you do like when companies start growing and stuff like sometimes like directors become a bit detached from it or like it, is, it becomes less about what you'd maybe created and now more about the money or whatever and I'm sure that there's yeah. loads of reasons behind that but when you see all the communications on LinkedIn about data shared and the people I've met at events and stuff like they all just like kind of genuinely seem like they like working there it's, it's, the, my main mantra is I would not ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do myself. So one of the bullet points on everybody's job description is if something is broken, fix it. And that includes the coffee machine. And that's that's in my job description. It's in Ed's job description. It's in everybody's job description because, you know, Ed and I own the company yet and we're the two directors yet. But actually, these are our colleagues. We are their colleague. And yeah, OK, we can make decisions that, you know, impact the lives of the team. But at the end of the day, we're all working together for the same reason. We're all we all get behind the mission of the organisation, and we all live and breathe the values, and th- that's just so important. I would hate for people to think that there's on in a ivory tower. You must book a meeting with us, have a conversation with it. It's just that's yeah, not how I want to work. It's just crazy, and I can see how you know. I mean, it's exhausting when you're in business, and I can see how you know other other entrepreneurs have kind of got to a stage where you know they want to step away a little bit. But even if that if that happened with us, it wouldn't stop me wanting to talk to the team. Okay, yeah. that's, that's a great joy. That's a great joy of life, right? People and conversations. Oh, it's certainly mine anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I suppose it's even more important that you're in a consultancy than everyone's pulling in the same direction because you're sending them out to paying customers. So we'll, it will come across very quickly if they don't like what they do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, most of our team actually work on site, so we do most of our client work on prem. Hmm. Uh, at the shed rather than actually yeah, okay. being on client site. I mean, we do do client site work, but it's really important that even if our team are on client site, they spend 
at least some time at Shed Quarters when we're open every week if possible, just so you know there's, they, they feel like they're still part of that team. I know that might be longer term, not as achievable as it is at the moment, but um, depending on the client, the clients and the work that we win. But um, the idea really is that everybody always feels connected to the mothership, and mm. that's that's something that we will try to perpetuate even with more growth. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we had a guy that was working for one of the huge consultancies for, I think, about four years. And he, by the end of it, he said that he essentially just worked for the end client. He, he didn't even know who he, who was signing off his timesheets at the big consultancy because, like, he just didn't know. He spent five days a week on the client site, went home, went back to the client site. That was just his uh, life. That's, I, I find that very odd, but, you know, just, like, weird, different, right? different business models work for different people. It just won't work for us. I just, that, that, yeah, I mean, I think when you get to the size of those, uh, maybe, but I just, I don't think it works. Um, no. And then just kind of my, my last thing to cover off, which we've kind of touched on already, that, that you're in Leeds, and you mentioned how much Leeds and kind of Yorkshire tech has changed over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um it's obvious when you see all your communications and the fact that the headquarters is in Leeds. And I think you got relatively recently got a new kind of nice big headquarters, right? So we just keep it, we keep expanding. So um, we, we expanded into another, uh, to the next floor up. So mm. we now have two floors instead of one. So nice. um, we were starting to have some fairly intensive debates about meeting room <laughs> space and who could have it and who couldn't. And um, there was just, we were all falling over each other. So we took the floor upstairs, which now means we've got vast amounts of space, which is great from a social distancing point of view when we go back in. So, yeah, we we, we have a much, much bigger headquarters than we had before. So it's not a new space. It's just extra space with a whole – we've got a whole floor to do breakout meetings and have meeting rooms and a coffee bar and, you know, breakout space for everybody to, to have conversations. And that's kind of client space. We've got ISA 27001 accreditation the timeline i've no idea now because time's gone all weird hasn't it but uh, last year i think at some point um which means that we can actually block off um our second floor where um, all the desk spaces and where all the workspaces and it means that we can keep it all locked down and secure um so that really helps from that point of view nice. um, so it means that we can also have events and people can come in and wander around and we don't have to worry because we know they can't get to kind of where the real secure stuff is hmm um, and yeah, so I mean, uh, w- what I meant by that as well is that, that you're obviously headquartered in Leeds, very proud of that. Um, and I think from us recruiting in Leeds, Manchester and Edinburgh, they all kind mm-hmm. of seem quite similar now in that there's loads of companies doing some really amazing things and they don't feel the need to have, like you've probably seen loads of these companies that have kind of like a fake London office on their website yeah. Ju- yeah. just so people might, maybe the data share could win more work if they had a London address, like stuff like that. Um, and it feels like that's changing, right? I completely agree. The world is changing and it was already changing before we all got used to Zoom and Teams. And I, I, I think, you know, it will open up the world even more for us. Um, but we've never felt compelled to have a, a London office. Uh, I think we maybe talked about it once about five years ago and it just never came up in conversation again. We absolutely love Leeds and Yorkshire. I mean, I am. I was born in York, so I mean, I, I'm very much a Yorkshire girl. Um, and Ed was born in Wakefield so you know we, we are born and bred and we're very passionate about um, Leeds as a city and, and the contribution that we can make um, but I mean the thing that it, it's just fab to see how the north is really starting to to grow and the buzz that is around you know Leeds, Manchester, Edinburgh, 
all of the North really has got such a huge role to play in the next phase of growth of this country. And I think the thing that drives me mad is I can get to London in two and a half hours. I don't need to get there 20 minutes faster. What I do need to do, however, is get to Manchester 20 minutes faster. That would make my life so much easier. Um, You know, the local infrastructure is is rubbish, really, Hmm. in terms of connecting up, you know, all of the key cities of the north. And, you know, I'd really like to see that improve. But actually, now we're all getting used to this remote work and it, it, it might not be as important as it once was. We'll just have yeah, to wait I, mean, I think. I would love a quicker train in Manchester. I've been stuck on that Transparent <laughs> Express for so long of my life. Um, but yeah, that's actually the last question I had was, do, do you think the kind of COVID situation might even help a little bit more? I suppose with hiring, because you can maybe get people who are saying, do you know what, I don't want to live in London anymore or I don't want to live here anymore. I want to live in the countryside in Yorkshire somewhere. And obviously, if there's a bit more flex on when they need to come into the city, you can maybe get more people. But also from mm-hmm. a client perspective, like client perspective, like everyone's now proven that you can do these things and it can be delivered remotely. So like, does it really matter if your data consultancy is in Leeds and you're in Southampton? Uh, we have got a client in Bristol, so I think it'll make looking after them a lot easier. I think it's going to be really interesting. So one of the things that I've got my own is how actually it increases the, uh, the size of the hiring pool for us. Um, I think we're never going to become fully home-based. We are very much a strong culture um, headquartered and interactive business i want people in the room together we a lot of ideation happens on whiteboards and stuff and we've still not cracked that from a re- working remotely perspective i'm so glad um, you said that by the way because i totally agree <laughs> yeah um i, I just think uh, particularly i mean i got so much value in my early career from just being around other people the friendships that i made the things that i learned from being sat in a room with people who were further along in the career than i was and I think we'll be doing such a huge disservice to um, the younger members of our team by taking that away from them. We'll give us more flexibility in terms of hiring more widely, I think. But what I do think is going to do is um, where there are some London organisations who are much more open to working from home now are going to come and try and take all of the really talented staff from further mm-hmm. afield. So I do think actually, while it might actually improve the reach for us, it improves the reach for everybody and I do, I do wonder what that's going to do to the industry as a whole. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, but this is yeah. where having a really strong culture that is kind of headquartered based will set us apart a little bit, I think, in the longer term. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think, uh, it's probably speaking personally about like what you just said there, but like I, I couldn't imagine doing a job 100% remote. So even if an amazing company from, I don't know, like somewhere in the States was to get in touch saying, we'll give you this much to do 100% remote, you don't even have to come in ever. That like, would put me off more than it would entice me because like not me and your colleague sounds weird I to think, me. Like I say, you know, I, 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 of course we're all here to make money, but I'm here to have a nice time and that, that for me is the power of people and the power of what is possible when people come together and and share ideas and have conversation and as much as I'm grateful for Teams and Zoom for the last six months I am itching to get into a room with people and come up with new ideas and what's next and just have genuine face-to-face conversation I've been on some walks with people and that's been really lovely but I am really missing human contact there's no way I could do this permanently it'd be awful yeah, no, I agree. And then last but not least, where is the best place for people to find out uh, or just kind of see what's going on at the data sheds um, on social media or the website or, or wherever you think is most appropriate? 
Oh, a bit of both. But yeah, the website um, has information about the business and how it works. Um, the data refinery is available at thedatarefinery.co.uk. You can load up your data yourself and you can use the product without any interaction with us. If you don't want to talk to us, that's fine. It's all free at the moment from a front end perspective. Nice. Um, but yeah, we, we, we've got a presence on social media, but generally speaking, it's only me updating my LinkedIn and my um, my Twitter. So um, I'm Datashed Anna on Twitter and um, we've got a Datashed presence there as well. Um, it's all on the website. But yeah, we nice. need to get we need to sort out our social media because we're, we're very sporadic in updating, mainly because we're all so busy. I think one of my next ties is going to be a marketing manager. Hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds good. Um, I'll make sure everything's tagged up um, when we post it. Good luck with the next bit of growth and also with the product. Um, Thank you. We'll, we'll check back in and see how the product's going um, in a while and we can talk about it. And then if there's um, anything else to shout about, we'll make sure we post it. But yeah, thank you for joining. Amazing. Thanks, Liam. I'm so glad we finally managed to get that one done. Anna has built a pretty, pretty incredible team in Leeds. The company are doing very well so please do check them out thank you to Cathcart Associates for continuing to sponsor and thanks to you for listening Uh, I'm sure we'll be back very soon bye for now